Here's an excerpt, and I'm going to really try to be careful so I don't get kicked out. Excited now, he pushed into her. As she squeezed her eyes as tightly as she could, her tongue circled her lips. He pushed harder, his breath heavy and labored. She scratched his back, and he cried out. She bit his ear and pulled his hair. There's a lot more to it. You're exactly saying exactly what I'm telling you. Joining us now is that brave mother, Michelle Brown. Uh, Shell, um, and so now, Shell, in a statement to Fox, the, the the spokesperson for the school district said that you don't have, uh, you, you do not have students at the high school level within the school district, and had been repeatedly advised that you could file a challenge to remove the book, but you have not done so. So yeah. you don't have a high school student. That you could file a challenge to remove the book, but you have not done so. But you have not done so. ACS works for positive change by shaping debate on vitally important legal and constitutional issues through the development and promotion of high-impact ideas. If you support these efforts and are not a full part of our network, I encourage you to become a national member of ACS today. And you can join at acslaw.org slash membership. Senator Ford, do you want to talk about the positions you've held and your experience? Sure. First of all, you should know that I am rooted in activism. I'm an activist. First and foremost, um, have been an activist for a long time since I was in high school uh, and in college raising hell. Uh, I have been, I believe, in civil disobedience. I believe that civil disobedience is an important tool in fighting for one's rights. I've been to jail on numerous occasions, handcuffed and thrown in paddy wagon. You know, I started out before I got elected uh, doing some uh, fighting some of the biggest banks in the world uh, when they disinvested in Southwest Atlanta, predominantly African-American community, uh, fought the one of the biggest, if not the biggest, garbage company. We're trying to expand the garbage dump into uh, Southeast Atlanta. Would have been the largest garbage, garbage dump in the Southeast. They were spreading so much money around. The only person that didn't get anybody was me. <laughs> <laughs> and they knew they had won the zoning fight. But guess what? By the time we got through with them, they lost the, the rezoning 13 to 0 on city council. We beat them like they stole something. And we, you know, we, and then eventually we did what? We closed it down. We got it closed down and locked up. So this, at this very hour, it is no longer functioning. The biggest environmental justice fight in the city of Atlanta's history. Uh, I'm a teacher. I was telling Alex I have degrees in history, African American, master's degree, uh, undergraduate degree in American history. Um, and it dovetails with my activism. You know, I not just fought the big banks, I taught how uh, redlining, the history of redlining in this city. The city has a, uh, a sordid history of excluding African-Americans from the economic mainstream. So, uh, and then finally, I'm a former elected official, served 21 years, some of it at uh, concurrent terms with Sam here. I'm, so, uh, I just want to emphasize that I'm not a lawyer. Although I served on Judiciary Committee, 19 out of my 21 years. Uh, and I think the two, two of those years I sat on, the other two years I sat on special judiciary. Uh, so I am not a lawyer, um, but I have depended on lawyers for uh, much of the trouble that I've got into. I've depended on lawyers to get me out and sometimes get me in trouble. <laughs> it's a great thing. But I am presently running for Congress in the U.S. House District 13, which takes in, and I have to be careful because I don't want to leave anybody out, Cobb, uh, Douglas, South Fulton, Clayton, uh, Henry County, and finally Fayette County, running for Congress against the long-term incumbent, 20-year incumbent. Um, you know, I 
serve, whether as an activist or as a teacher or as a uh, elected official, for one reason, one reason only. I get asked often by young people, uh, Senator Ford, I want to run for office. I said, you should not run for office except for one reason, to help people. To help people. I mean, it sounds hokey, but it's the reality. If you do it for any other reason, because you want to, you know, some people, sometimes people run, so as lawyers or real estate agents, get more clients, get more exposure. I know, because they told me. Sometimes they run because they want to be around handsome men and pretty women. You know, and some of them I think just need chicken wings and drink Chardonnay wine. But the only reason one should run is to help people. And in the 13th, even as we speak, the people of the 13th district are being what? Neglected. They're being neglected. It is a progressive district. I am a progressive. I admit to it and uh, I revel in it. I am a progressive. You know, I, I supported Bernie Sanders. He supported me when I ran for mayor. And people say, oh man, you the black Bernie Sanders. I said, no. <laughs> I, I was doing this long before I had heard of any Bernie Sanders. So my progressive roots go way, way back. But this is a progressive district, 80 to 85% Democratic, 65% African American. They support what? Medicare for all, $15 minimum wage, all the things that I'm talking about and been talked about for a while. They deserve representation that reflects that. So Senator Ford is a teacher, politician, activist, progressive, and you're also kind of an amateur prophet, if you want to talk about your uh, predatory lending. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The biggest fight of my public life has been fighting against the big banks and predatory lending. Housing advocates around the country took on predatory lenders. But one of the fiercest fights was here in Georgia over what was called the Georgia Fair Lending Act. The predatory lending fight was the fight of my life. And to a great extent, the, you know, it happened in the core city, city of Atlanta, but it happened in the suburbs and in the places that I'm seeking to represent in the 13th. It just devastated those neighborhoods have not recovered, have not recovered to this very hour. You know, because when you lose your house, the bank takes it, the, the house is rented out, the renters, what, may or may not take care of the house, or it may just stand vacant in these subdivisions, these subdivisions, if you know Old National Highway, those subdivisions on Old National Highway, a lot of those homes remain, what, empty. And drug dealers, you know, drug dealers fill that. Right. And so, uh, yeah, the predatory lending fight was the fight of my time. If you want to see a real good documentary, Frontline did a four-part series in the 2000s, 2010. They did a four-part series on uh, the housing crisis. There's going to come a time when Wachovia is going to have to answer for the evil that they do. And we were able to pull it off because, again, Vincent understood how to put a coalition together and how to talk to everyone. And he was invaluable in that effort. Georgia now has the toughest predatory lending law in the nation. I could not have done it without two things, being an activist, knowing how to organize, you know, putting together town hall meetings all over the state. And then, but as importantly, I had lawyers some from North Carolina, some from here in the city of Atlanta, who are the experts on predatory lending. They would forget, I would forget more about predatory lending. They would forget more about predatory lending than I'll ever know. I depended on them on a daily basis to draft legislation uh, and do their lawyerly thing. And uh, some of them, until this very hour, are my best friends because beyond their legal prowess, they cared. They cared about their clients. They would even travel to me with me to meet some of these banks, city financial subsidiaries at the time of Citigroup. We met in the room with the uh, vice, vice president. I'm going to tell a short, um, one more short anecdote. We sat in the room. It was a nondescript building. 
in Baltimore. No signage. I'm like, <laughs> so we go in, and the vice president and the chief legal officer there, and we bring in, we dump on the table about 15 predatory loans. One of them was a woman on the 13th floor over at Grady Hospital. You know what's over at the 13th floor of Grady Hospital? The psych ward. They had stolen her house. And we said, we want you to give these folks their houses back, this pile of mortgages. They said, the VP for finance said, no, nah, we can't do that. We started gathering our little briefcases and whatnot about to get up out of there. They said, sit up. The vice president said, sit down, sit down. So we sat down. He went out in the hall with the finance guy. And, uh, and by the way, the legal aid lawyer that was there didn't know what we were doing. We knew exactly what we were doing. Because when you walk out the room in a negotiation, it's on, right? You already know that. When you walk out of a room with a negotiation, it's about to go down. They didn't know what we were going to do. We knew what we were going to do. They come back in the room, settle all 13 cases. Right then and there. Hundreds of thousands, not millions of dollars that were stolen by city financials back to the people that they exploited. No, my, my, my career is not nearly as storied as Senator Fort's. Um, but um, I've been in office for uh, six years now. Um, I was elected in 2016. Um, I, but before that, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm always happy to come back to GSU College of Law because this is where I got my law degree. Um, so I'm a lawyer legislator, definitely not as cool as Senator Fort. Um, currently, I practice um, and, and serve as general counsel for a nonprofit health center along with uh, serving uh, House District 101. Um, but I have the distinct pleasure of um, in distinction, I should say, of, of being the first um, Asian American Democrat and the first openly gay man ever elected to the Georgia State Legislature. Um, and I won when uh, Trump won um, in November of 2016. So that was certainly a surreal um, moment. Um, but yeah, um, you know, I 100% agree with what Senator Ford said, in which, you know, if you're going to run for office, do it to help and serve um, other people. Um, I think we have too many politicians. Politics tends to bring the best and worst of people, people who are in it for themselves, and people who actually care about their community and want to give back. Um, and without a doubt, we need a lot more people who will sacrifice uh, to serve their community, serve in the state legislature, because it is hard, especially when you're in the minority party, um, and especially given the current political climate that we're in. Um, but, but, you know, the, the last thing I'll say, and I'm happy to you know, open it up to conversation, is I think we're in such a challenging period of time, because it's not just getting through the worst pandemic or public health crisis we've experienced in 100 years. Um, we're going through a, a turning point in American history in which um, the confluence of the Trump presidency and such a challenging global crisis, um, you know, I think especially for... Um, millennials and younger millennials and, and folks of the, uh, you know, Gen Z, um, it makes sense that folks feel that things are hopeless um, because it's a very challenging period of time that we're in. Um, but I think one of the things that continues to keep me going is uh, voters, especially when you talk to voters in Gwinnett County, for example, who had to wait in line for eight hours, four to eight hours just to vote, and they were happy to do so because they were so committed to ensuring that um, their voice would be heard in their, in their democracy. Um, and, then, and, and then the next generation, um, seeing the next generation of leaders um, step up um, to run for office, uh, step up to become lawyers and to do what they can to uh, give back to their community. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think despite the challenges that we're facing, you know, I think you have to have hope um, to, to see it through to the very end um, and to get to that new normal, whatever that may, whatever that may be. You know, I think for a lot of us, our first memory of big, life-changing current events was the financial crisis and everything was so superlative. People always said, this is 
biggest since the Great Depression, worst since this, but and now, really for the for the first time since then, there's been two years of um, accurately extreme characterizations of everything that's happening. But and you know, prices uh, newly are extra unstable. So. Um, what have, how do you think the pandemic has changed things for the communities that you serve and how has it changed the functioning of government institutions? So, you know, I think, and I wish the pandemic was really a moment in which um, Americans came together. But I think because of the president that we had at the time, frankly speaking, who made this divisive, who made this a partisan issue, that's why the pandemic, wearing a mask, getting a vaccine, has become so hyper-partisan uh, to the degree in which, in a moment in time which, as Americans, we should have been united against a virus, um, we're continuing to attack one another. Which, and, and we see the results and the effect therein. I mean, um, the fact that nearly a million Americans have died out of six million people around the world. I mean, not only does it say, you know, how terrible the American healthcare system is and all the work that we have to do, um, especially in terms of uh, getting to universal health care. Um, you know, how do we move forward in a moment in which we remain so divided? Um, and the state legislature uh, right now, you know, what are we doing to further invest in expanding access to health care and supporting public health across the state? We're not doing any of that. Right? We're still refusing to expand Medicaid because it's become such a partisan issue. And what are the primary issues that are moving forward? They're all a bunch of political nonsense that address manufactured issues, such as trying to stop the teaching of critical race theory in K through 12 schools, um, loosening gun restrictions. Right? I mean, the, the CRT bill in particular, you know, you know, teachers are prohibited from teaching that the United States of America is fundamentally racist. Right? Is that what teachers are teaching uh, students right now across uh, the state we, of Georgia? We do have a reparations clause at this school that I think does espouse that. I think uh, by and large, right. <laughs> it's not in K through twelve. Yeah, it's not in K through twelve. Exactly. I mean, to to assume or to paint this picture that teachers right now are teaching the next generation to hate America. Right? It's ludicrous, and all of it is focused on galvanizing. Uh, a manufactured white majority, especially as we've just come through the redistricting process, where, for example, in Gwinnett, despite the fact that we've seen a decrease in the white population, they're creating majority white districts. And so it's been very challenging in, in that rather than come together and find the common ground and find the issues in which we should all be trying to take care of one another, it's more of the incessant, constant political fighting. And unfortunately, you know, a lot of these issues are designed simply for the purpose of maintaining political power more so than uh, serving um, Georgians. Um, yeah. yeah, I'm going to paint an even grimmer picture Please. than you, Sam. Um, I've already talked about Medicare for All and why we should have it more now than ever, right? Out of the million people who have died, uh, Dr. Honigan, who works for the, with the Progressive Democrats of America, great organization, go to PDA.org. Dr. Honigan uh, estimates, and there'll be more research on this, but I believe he said 200,000 of the 1 million people that died didn't have to die because we didn't have a, you know, a really unified guaranteed um, um, health system. Um, there are some positive things coming out of this uh, for progressives. Uh, there is more support for unions now than it's been in a long time. You know, they're organizing at Starbucks. I mean, people believe that uh, collective action uh, is worth fighting for. So that, for someone like me, came out of a union household, mother and father, always supported the union. That is something that I'm thrilled with. Uh, at the end of the day, though, I'll put on my history teacher's hat on. 
you know, I've studied a little bit the rise of fascism in Europe in the 30s and 40s. It had, uh, you know, the Bear Hall fights in Munich and, you know, in Germany. And it kind of reminds me of January 6th. You know, some of the same, I mean, these people have read the, have read the memo about how to create a fascist uh, society. I'm, am I saying that we're becoming a fascist uh, country? I'm saying that I have that fear. I don't, you know, I, but, but there are some saving graces, and I think the, the, Increase in union organizing is one of the best effects of the pandemic. You know, people who are serving other people say, damn, I deserve better than, you know, maybe I deserve a, a real minimum wage. Maybe I deserve, you know, to be treated better. Uh, so uh, that's kind of my response to that. Yeah, but I don't think that's a grim picture at all. You know? Okay. Mm -hmm. No. Okay. Yeah, there's new opportunities. Yeah, there, uh, Amazon workers are organizing. Starbucks workers. Mm -hmm. um, people are quitting their jobs. Uh, this is, you know, the biggest pandemic in hundred years. It's also the Great Resignation, where mm -hmm. people are leaving the jobs that don't pay them well or treat them well. So, did you want to add something? Yeah, I mean, I think, and I hope that um, you know, this pandemic is a reminder of why collective action is so important. Right, because this is an instance in which just being by yourself, you're not going to be able to adequately protect yourself and your family. You have to work with others. Right? I, I, would, I would have hoped that that would have applied uh, in more broader contexts as well. Um, but it is good to see um, you know, greater um, support for collective bargaining and organizing for workers. Um, and hopefully that serves as a foundation. Because I think more than anything, because I would agree with Senator Ford, um, you know, in this very challenging moment of time, in which there's so much uncertainty, there I think there's a natural inclination toward to move toward autocracy, to move toward um, an authoritarian strong man or woman, which is not isolated just to the United States of America, but we see this across the world and, and countries, um, you know, in which they move toward intentionally move more toward authoritarian forms because they feel they can be better protected, um, and so, you know. I think, despite that, you know, at the same time in 2020, we saw the highest turnout in um, uh, for, for any presidential or election in our country's history. And so at the same time, I think there was an understanding of the path that we were heading down um, and a desire not to, you know, continue to take those steps. Um, but, you know, if we're looking at the actions of, um, you know, a certain political party, I'm not yet clearly seeing um, them completely break away from that, right? It's a doubling down on making it harder to vote, on trying to further escalate and terrify people with all these, you know, manufactured political issues that do nothing more than divide, right? I mean, if you're, if you're trying to divide people by scaring them and pinning them against another, you know, that creates more of an opportunity for an authoritarian figure or party or government to come and you know take its place. Um, so I think we have to be clear-eyed about the challenges that we're, we're facing, but I think we also have to recognize that we have the antidote, and the antidote is voting, right? It is, it is I would agree with what President Biden said, that our democracy, our, our state of the union, our democracy is strong because our people are strong. And I think so long as we understand that for ourselves and vote vote in every single election, um, that certainly becomes, especially the, the younger generation, our generation, and, and those who, who are coming after us, um, that I think serves as an antidote to this direction and these steps that we're taking toward fascism and autocracy because folks are terrified of the changing nature of uh, our country. They're, they're terrified um, of uh, the changing demographics and um, the um, all the economic uncertainty that's being driven um, by technological acceleration, right? Which is a global phenomenon as well. Which is why I think this is a global challenge of democracy versus autocracy. Yeah, stakes are high. Um, I wanted to ask a question. First, I want to say I'm so grateful that you guys took the time to to come speak to us. You guys 
by far are the people that I've been most excited to get to hear speak since I've been a law student here at Georgia State. I've done some community organizing and activism with you um, to help Grady, Grady Dialysis patients. Oh, and man. so, you know, to have people come speak to us that, you know, I admire so much what you've done for our state and for, for people. Um, it's just such an honor. And I, um, have been so concerned as a parent. Um, I'm in Cobb County and I have two children who are at K through 12, middle and high school. And besides like reaching out to my kids, teachers and telling them, you know, I support them. Um, do you guys have any suggestions um, for fighting or um, things that we can do to sort of mitigate the negative impacts of the manufactured anti-PRT law? I, I, frankly, I think it's a long-term issue in which you know you have to continue to vote. I mean, they very they gerrymandered the Cobb County Board of Election districts, the Cobb County Board of Commissions. Same thing when it comes to uh, Gwinnett, when it comes to the Board of Commissioners, um, and, and that's going to make it more difficult for the emerging population to have the representation that they want. That, that's that, that they feel um, that their values are in line with yours. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think first and foremost, you know, don't underestimate the power that you have of voting and being involved in uh, the politics of your local community. All politics are local. And I think they've taken such, I mean, they've literally broken decades of precedent when it comes to local control regarding local redistricting, precisely because they've seen the population shift. They've seen uh, people of color elected for the first time in hundreds of years. Right, that, that, for example, in Gwinnett County, Marlene Foskey, they're trying to draw out, Jerrica Richardson, um, you know, they're, they're, they're trying to draw out people of color, and they're saying, we're not racist, and they get offended when I, you know, call out the, the, the racist action that they've taken. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think, you know, talk to your school board members, um, you know, be involved as much as you can, um, but understand that, you know, I think in this kind of challenging period of time is resilience. Right? Sometimes it's not a matter of you know, beating back or overcoming uh, the opposition. Sometimes it's just you know continuing to build from the ground up because I think ultimately that's the best uh, defense against this wave of white nationalism that I think is driving us toward the path of authoritarianism. Yeah, and I agree. You know, I, I'm outraged when we voted right back to talk to Lord Day or two about that. Um, by the way, it didn't start in 20, the vote expression did not start in 2020 or 2021. I remember in uh, 2003 and 2004 when the Republicans took over, Georgia was the first or one of the two first states to pass voter ID laws. Yeah, I mean, which is really the beginning of a new era of voter suppression. Um, and I remember those were some real heated throwdowns. Um, so, and every year after that, successive year, you know, they would always have another bill to, you know, restrict voter suppression. On the other hand, I'm not that worried, well, I, I'm not that worried about it. I am and I, and I am not because it wasn't effective in 2020. I mean, people were standing in line in the heat. I mean, with all the, you know, stuff they were doing, and it's going to happen again this year. Uh, no matter how many boxes they, you know, drop boxes they take away, or how difficult they make you can't get both water. Watch that. Watch that. <laughs> You know, Sam, you gonna go out with me? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> and make sure people have water. But so, I, you know, it's gonna be the South Africa thing. You know, to overturn apartheid. Black people and their allies were standing in line for you know a mile long line. So, uh, but I'm gonna put my organizers hat on and respond to you. I mean, you know, take over the PTA. Or, you know, or I guess there are, what are these, the councils, school councils, I don't know, you, 
just as necessary to take them over. Because, but organizing the PTA uh, and make them, you know, the kind of grassroots based progressive entities that we need. Uh, I've seen people do that, take over this PTA and uh, use that because, I mean, talking about critical race theory, I mean, all it is is appeals to racism. You know, you're going to tell me as an African American that I can't talk, that we're not going to learn about slavery, and I am just two generations to talk about it. My ancestors first registered in 1867, 155 years ago, this spring. So you tell me I can't talk about why they weren't able to vote before then and why now, how they stood in line 155 years ago and signed up. I don't want to hear it. So, um, but organize, vote, organize, invite. Your your master's program probably would have been illegal. The CRT band. Yeah, I got my master's degree in African American history. Yeah, I wouldn't have been able to. If it had been applied, I wouldn't have been <laughs> able to. And boy, don't even talk about the classes I was teaching. Boy. Um, oh, um, so it seems like COVID revealed a lot of issues that we that were just kind of under the tide um, in housing and. How do you kind of see that trajectory like, in the near future? I think that's an excellent question. Um, housing is a critical issue. Um, food security is another critical issue. And, and I think we, you, you know, it's this dichotomy in which, we, despite the fact that we're the most wealthiest nation on earth, um, you know, we have so many people who still live in poverty uh, unnecessarily. Um, but I think housing is an excellent issue. There's a great bill that I'm a co-sponsor, Possible 408, uh, that would reform our eviction process uh, such that a landlord would have to give notice before they proceed with Sunday notice, right? Not much. Um, but that would help address some of the highest eviction rates uh, that the state of Georgia have compared to many other states in the South uh, in particular. Um, but of course, you know, is that bill moving forward at all? Absolutely not. Right, um, because the apartment association has come in, and you know, you know, I think a Republican member asked, "Well, where are the tenants? Right, where are the folks? You know, on, on the verge of, of homelessness? Why aren't they lobbying me? Well, why do you think?" <laughs> right. So, I mean, right. I, mean, I think the the um, you know it's from homelessness to affordable housing the, the entire housing spectrum that um, needs to be addressed um, that I think the pandemic has demonstrated that housing really is a basic necessity and I think we have to also acknowledge that we're not out of it just yet right there's another uh, our BA2 is uh, increasing in China and Europe and you know, I think we have to also understand that this may not be the last pandemic that we have to address or deal with. So we can't just go back to the normal that existed before uh, COVID. Uh, we have to adapt. We have to get to a new normal that takes into consideration housing, food security, uh, ensuring that you can pay Wi-Fi, you know, your, your basic utilities, that those needs are met. Um, the challenge, I think, is one of politics, right? Uh, one of the most important lessons that I learned when I was getting my master's up in D.C. was that it's politics that drives policy. You can have the most perfect piece of public policy, but if you don't have the political wherewithal or the political majority necessary to move that public policy forward or to enact that good piece of legislation, it's moot. It's pointless. And so it all comes back to, as Senator Fort was saying, organizing and voting. It really does. If you want to see progress when it comes to housing, affordable housing, homelessness, eviction reform, um, you know, it requires ensuring that there are good leaders in positions of power who will help carry those issues forward. Um, because there's a lot of industry opposition, um, a lot of industry and entities that benefit from the status quo um, that you still have to overcome, even if you are in a majority or have a political majority capable of moving those issues forward. I'm going to get political. I'm going to get political. You want to say it? You know, because, I mean, that issue of political will is absolutely critical. 
that's why I'm running. You know, and I'm not here in a vacuum to talk about policy without talking about the politics. You know, the incumbent in the seat that I'm running for is is making common cause with payday lenders, who are arguably the worst of the worst predatory lenders. Taking someone's house is bad enough. Taking somebody's car and a pot of phone is bad enough. But to take a working person's paycheck, that's really low. So he's making common cause with payday lenders. He's um, uh, making common calls with Republicans that are trying to deregulate the very products, Wall Street products, that crash the economy. You know, derivatives, has anybody heard about derivatives? Wall Street didn't understand it. I don't understand it. But it crashed the economy. Um, uh, you know, uh, Making common calls with right wing, funneling $643,000 of his campaign money to his family and business. <laughs> so it really it comes down to politics. That's why I'm running. And, uh, you know, and when I start teaching again, I taught history, of course, and political science. I'm going to make this next. That anytime you have bad public policy, when you have people doing absurd things in public policy, you will also you will almost always find legal corruption or ethical corruption. Bad policy and corruption go together. When you see somebody stealing, they probably are voting the wrong way. When you see someone voting the wrong way, there's either legal or illegal corruption going on. Somebody getting paid, as we used to say back on. Somebody getting paid. So you can't take the politics out of politics. It's just the reality of it. And that's, you know, I just wanted to add that little piece to it. There's two things that I would also add. Um, one, you know, federal, state, and local, right? There's opportunities at every single level of government. Uh, to effectuate change. And you don't have to be an elected official to make progress on some of these issues as well. Um, my, my start um, in, down the path of public service really began um, with the health, uh, with health, with the health clinic, right? And, and taking the health legacy, uh, health advocacy and legislation course. I don't know if that's still being taught here. I believe it's being taught tonight. Okay, <laughs> great. Um, but it, it was really those courses that introduced me to, um, one, the legislative process, but in doing this work and continuing to be engaged in, in, for example, trying to expand access to healthcare, but more specifically trying to end the HIV uh, AIDS epidemic, which is what I do in my personal capacity as a nonprofit attorney, um, there are different arrows and quivers to address these public challenges that we face. Nonprofit, philanthropy, right? Politics and, and you know, working as an attorney, pro bono work in a private capacity, right? There's multiple ways in which you can address them. And you know, you can work with a magistrate court uh, and a nonprofit to create like an eviction diversion program, which is something that they created in Gwinnett County, right? That helped reduce the level of evictions, especially at the height of the pandemic. Right. And so I, I say all that to say that you know there are multiple avenues in which you can try and address a public uh, challenge that um, a community is facing. But when it comes to the politics as well. You know, my experience is that it really requires playing a long game, right? Because there is a there is corruption in our politics, right? We gotta take money out of politics. We gotta have independent redistricting reforms where politicians aren't choosing their voters. Um, there's so many things that we need to do, I think, to um, improve and strengthen our democracy that I think can only come about when when there is a kind of sustained, uh, people-powered uh, demand. Uh, for our democracy and our elected officials to be more held accountable to, to the people. Um, because I think it's only in that capacity, and, they, and I hope it doesn't require additional crises, um, but how are we going to take money out of politics? Right? How are we going to ensure that our uh, constitutional amendment for Citizens United to, to you know, do all that? Um, these are long-term endeavors that ultimately are absolutely necessary to address the uh, public policy challenges, which I think will only continue 
especially as the world becomes smaller, right? We, we're becoming more and more integrated as a global society, um, inherently, in terms of our capitalist, capitalist-based economy, in terms of the internet, in terms of you know, all these you know, new innovative technologies that are continuing to bring us together. And so um, we have to chew gum and, and, and walk at the same time, right? We need to be measured in terms of, um, you know, it's not just one election cycle. Right? It's you know, a decade in which we continue to engage and try and improve upon our political structure, uh, the foundation of our democracy, while also at all levels of government trying to address these very challenging uh, problems as well. Uh, just a follow-up question about the eviction legislation. Obviously, very important and pretty much sucks that it's like being held up. But um, it kind of seems that that treats a symptom as opposed to the root of the issue. And what do you what do you think would treat the root of the issue? Reparations would be a good start in part, literally. Um, I, I mean, you know, I think one of the root causes is the uh, growing income and wealth inequality that we experience, which is rooted in part in racism, but that's exacerbated. Um, in multiple facets, um, but you know, I, I think you know, from a public health perspective, trying to go as far upstream as you can to address uh, a problem to try and find the root uh, cause of an issue, um, I think you know, have we even done that? No, I don't think we have. Right? Um, I mean, our politics are such that, and look at all the bills that are actually moving forward in that past one chamber or the other. Right? They're all focused on the next election cycle. They're not focused on addressing systemic challenges. Because um, you know, whether it's the system that's you know, bringing that about or the people that are in charge, um, you know, either way it's unacceptable. But again, there is a solution to the problem. It just you know, requires long-term sustained engagement um, and, and, and an exertion of our individual political uh, power to bring about that kind of collective change. And, um, I mean, what Sam said about the long game is absolutely important. And I'm going to very quickly tell you about the long game of the last 30 years. After the Persian Gulf War, I mean, after the fall of the Iron Curtain, we said, dang, there's going to be a peace dividend. Progressives said, there's going to be a peace dividend. We don't need a wartime economy now that we've had we had since World War II. And then Dalton came that war against terrorism, endless war, right? And then after the financial crisis 2008, we had Occupy. You know, the Occupy movement. I got arrested over here in Central Park in 2010. You know, and I just I was just so impressed by the young people who had graduated college and couldn't get a job. Those, those were a lot of young people that were in the park. You know, and I was there to support them and got hauled away with them. Um, and then now, with this pandemic, you know, the progressive movement has advanced in some ways, but not as far as you would have thought. So, um, but playing the long game, absolutely critical, you know, not creating, and I know this is trite, a moment, but a movement. And you know who has an absolutely important role to play? Y'all do. Y'all do. You know, I never get in a room with law students and don't make a pitch for public interest law. Because I'm telling you, all the stuff I've done, I would get lawyers in the room, progressive lawyers in the room, to tell me what the law was. Like with predatory lending, got the expert lawyers in the room. Before I even went to organize in the community, I got lawyers in the room to tell me what I needed to know. So, in you know, lawyers over at Lambley Delay, they're they're angels, you know, because they do so much good work, even with the restrictions put on them by federal law. But you know. Having lawyers who are out there on the battlefield, absolutely critical. 
to activists and to progressive elected officials. So I'm hoping that y'all are considering, you know, whether it be the environment or housing or health care, absolutely, absolutely critical uh, to have that kind of insight that lawyers provide to avoid pitfall, pit, you know, and to advance the activist uh, agenda. Woo, you sure gotta climb a lot of steps to get to this Capitol building here in Washington. Well, I wonder who that sad little scrap of paper is. In the Schoolhouse Rock account of how a bill gets made, sometimes people say that the first step is, you know, it, someone introduces it. But I think in the original I'm Just a Bill, it starts with a citizen has an idea. Gee, Bill, you certainly have a lot of patience and courage. Well, I got this far. When I started, I wasn't even a bill. I was just an idea. Some folks back home decided they wanted a law passed, so they called their local congressman, and he said, you're right, there ought to be a law. Then he sat down and wrote me out and introduced me to Congress, and I became a bill. Um, if you're an ordinary person today who wants to change something, I guess the first stop would be try to vote, and then maybe you're in a tightly packed district, so your vote doesn't do very much. Maybe you want to lobby your legislator about um, how expensive housing is getting, but you can't because you have to work doubles and pull 70-hour weeks to you know, stay in your home. You know, you try to run against your congressman that's not serving you well, but there's, due largely to the Supreme Court's jurisprudence, there's a million hurdles to um, funding the campaign so that you'll be competitive with your opponent. So, and then maybe you could hire one of us to uh, plan a lawsuit and then the federal judiciary is 25% Trump appointees. And the state courts are, you know, have a lot of judges appointed by very conservative politicians. Listen to those congressmen arguing. Is all that discussion and debate about you? Yeah, I'm one of the lucky ones. Most bills never even get this far. I hope they decide to report on me favorably, otherwise I may die. Die? Yeah, die in committee. What do you think the prospects are for making the democratic process more accessible in the coming years in Georgia or you know, writ large? I think it, it, um, the best way in which we can make progress on those issues is to get Stacey Abrams elected as governor, um, to get uh, someone like Representative B. Wynn elected as Secretary of State, uh, someone who I've uh, endorsed who's also a friend, uh, because there is a lot of um, progress that they can make simply by ensuring that their office and the administration of elections, for example, is done as it should. Right? That each uh, elect, you know, all 159 election offices, um, you know, have the support necessary to ensure uh, that every single vote counts. That no matter how the election goes, um, those are going to be the results. Right? Um, and so, again, th there's an opportunity to, to uh, make progress in the short run while continuing to try and build the necessary, the requisite political majority to pass the fundamental, uh, the, the transformative large national piece of legislation. Um, how long did it take, for example, to enact the Civil Rights Act, uh, Civil Rights Act of 1964, or the Voting Rights Act of 1965? Right, that didn't come about in just one election cycle. Right, that was probably a multi-decade year effort. Right, that required a culmination. Um, again, to Senator Vincent's point, not a moment, but a movement, a gradual, long-term movement toward effectuating that change, which for generations afterwards becomes transformative um, for millions of Americans, right? Um, you know, we are a nation of laws, and, and as law students, um, you know, not only are we practicing um, the law, but we have, we have to understand our capacity to influence the lawmaking process, right? And that happens both in the short, midterm, mid-run and long-term capacity. And we have to understand the impact that we can have um, at every step of the way. And it is frustrating, right? American politics is incredibly frustrating because it can be so dysfunctional. Um, and I think th there's, I, I forgot exactly who said it, but um, the gridlock that you see when it comes to the legislative process, there is an intentionality um, as to why there is so much gridlock. Because it ultimately ensures, or at least the theory goes, that that will prevent bad legislation from moving forward with all the opportunities. To you know stop what it does? 
Exactly. It prevents legislation going forward that challenges the power yeah. and control. Yeah. You know, <laughs> and uh, and I'm going to disagree with you just Please. to be provocative. Yes. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, changing the laws is all is so absolutely important, but. I would submit to you that getting into the streets is more important. Legislation follow follows movement. You know, it really took, you know, what I told you earlier, you know, Willis Ford, my great, great, three times great uncle, signed up to vote in the spring of 1867. You know, and here we, it was 100 years later that the Voting Rights Act. Path. But that, the, you know, Lyndon Johnson, you know, very complex fellow, but he didn't do it because, you know, for completely uh, philanthropic reasons. There was a movement that provoked him, you know, for, uh, that provoked the society for 100 years, a movement for voting rights. And if not for that movement, you wouldn't have them. Voting Rights Act of 1965. If not for, you know, the uh, ascendancy of the labor movement during the 1930s, you wouldn't have had Social Security and so many other things, like a weekend and 40-hour <laughs> week and all of that stuff. So, and I'm not really disagreeing with you. What I am saying is, you know, for progressive advance, you have to have both. A movement and a and a uh, you have to have a, an organizing movement in the streets as well as a uh, a legal movement. You need you know Dr. King and Thurgood Marshall. You know, and it is I will tell you frustrating and exhausting, but ultimately, like I said, when we passed that anti-predatory lending law and they revoked it, you know I was mad as hell. But at the same time, I said, if we did it once, we can do it again. We beat them straight up. We beat the banks straight up. And they may have overturned it, but we did something that almost no one thought we could, could, could do. Beat them all. Banks, mortgage banks, mortgage companies, Wall Street, we beat them. You know, for one you know, <laughs> shining moment. We, we we did a great thing, and the thing that we know is we can do it. Well, we can do it again. I have every confidence. We can do it again, and that's why I'm running. And that can I can I make a pitch? I told you, I pitched y'all on. I pitched y'all on, you know, doing public interest law in some one way or the other. And I'm going to pitch you, you know. I'm going to win on May 24. You know, I'm going to win, but I need help. You know, you thought I'd come over here just to be able to win. I came over here to try to recruit you to volunteer for my campaign. You know, uh, become part of a movement. Uh, you, know, uh, you know, I'm an underdog, but I've come from underdog to big dog in the past. So if you can volunteer for a campaign, I know you're not really busy. <laughs> Writing, you know, briefs and preparing for the bar and all that. But if you think you have time between now and May 24th to, you know, Sam doesn't have to worry. He, he got it, he got it made in shape. <laughs> Me on the other hand, I'm in a, I'm in the fight of my life. So if you can volunteer time, Maybe on a Saturday to go out and knock on some doors and make phone calls, or otherwise, uh, please let you know. Let me know before I leave. Uh, my website is fortforcongress.com. Um, my email address, my personal email address, is Senator Ford, F O R T, excuse me, Senator Ford at gmail.com. Okay. So reach out to me if you can. Uh, I need your help. Uh, and uh, so I made my dual pick. So I would agree with Senator Ford in that 
there has to be an inside-outside game, right? Um, but the one thing I would add upon mm -hmm. his comments is it's not just an inside-outside game with the legislative body. Um, the Obergefell opinion, I think, comes uh, most clearly to mind in which what did the Georgia State Legislature do when it came to same-sex marriage? They passed a constitutional amendment, and in 2010, 70% of Georgians approved the constitutional amendment to define marriage as between a man and a woman. Right. As a gay man growing up in Georgia, never in my life did I think that you know I'd be able to get married in my home state. Though I'm, you know, not. I don't have a fiance. But, you know, so, so, yeah. um, theoretically speaking, I would want that right, right? Um, but why did the Supreme Court rule in that manner, right? I mean, by that time, about two thirds of states had already passed. Two, yeah, already passed some version of same-sex marriage. And so that movement, that broad-based movement, um, is required to effectuate change, whether in a court, Supreme Court, or whether in a legislative capacity. Um, and yes, I, I, I would also say I'm, I'm not in the race of my life right now, um, but I am certainly going to be doing everything to build out a team and turn out Gwinnett right. as a chair of the Gwinnett State House Foundation. So we'll have a good time this, this election cycle. Yeah, and, uh, before I hand out our last question, I'll just um, let you guys know, if, you, if you've never knocked doors, it really is a great experience. I, I've knocked thousands of doors in um, Georgia and, and other states as well. And the, it, there are people who will tell you that it's the first time they've ever been visited by a political campaign. And I, I think uh, probably even more so in the 13th than in some of these dense Atlanta neighborhoods, people are uh, thrilled to receive you. And I think a lot of times in law, you just it's such a breath of fresh air to just get something real, just a conversation with a flesh and blood human being about things that they care about. So, any final questions? I have one nobody else does. Um, so, you spoke before about the importance of the labor movement, which I heavily agree with. And especially in a state like Georgia, where we have, unfortunately, extremely low union density at a low point in American history of, of union density, and you know, not having not having either the state legislatures or you know prospective federal legislation is likely to, to pass at least not this mm -hmm. at least not this uh, assembly you know this this particular Congress. What can we do, especially in Georgia, to begin to revitalize that movement before we have any of the the tools to change the laws that you know in part uh, cause that to continue to happen? That's an absolutely great question. Um, there was a there was a Supreme Court justice, was it I think it might have been Rehnquist, who wrote before he got on the court, he wrote a memo. Yeah. William Rehnquist as a clerk for Justice Jackson. Yeah. Mm -hmm. He was a uh, Supreme Court justice. Well, before he became a Supreme Court justice, he was a business lawyer. <laughs> oh, oh, you're talking about the Powell Memorandum. The Powell Memorandum. How many of you heard of Carl? And he wrote an interesting memorandum. Uh, it went to the American Chamber of Commerce. It was supposed to be an internal memorandum, basically, to the business community. It leaked, and as things usually do, and uh, it's quite interesting. You just pay attention to the rhetoric. It's kind of like a spoiled three-year-old who expects to have everything, and somebody takes a piece of candy away from him, they have a tantrum, the world's ending. Now, that's pretty much the picture. Of course, business was essentially running everything, but not totally. There was there were democratizing tendencies in the 60s. The uh, public became more engaged in public affairs and was considered a serious threat. So he calls on the business community to uh, defend ourselves from this monstrous attack. And he says, look, uh, after all, we're the ones who have the resources, we have the funds, you know, we're the trustees of the universities, uh, we should be able to protect ourselves from this assault that's uh, wiping out uh, uh, the American way of business and so on. Uh, that's the Powell Memorandum. The right-wing movement we're facing now was born in that memo. It was born in that memo. They, they executed that memo perfectly. Um, and thus you have the decline in the labor movement, right? Yeah. So what I would submit is we have to have a strategy, you know, particularly in the South, you know, where race, where racism, let's be for real, racism has infected the labor movement. 
have to have a strategy and it has to be and the, the, the labor movement did in the last 20 years realize that in order for them to become viable again they had to do what organize they had put they put they had through a period of time put less emphasis on organizing membership for example the best thing that the labor movement has done is that we're going to organize the Latino community. We're not going to, you know, alienate them, the Latino community. We got to bring them in because they are what? The future of the labor movement. So uh, I would, you know, suggest very strongly that if that, if that is important to you, that you in some way try to get involved in the labor movement as a lawyer or as an organizer or otherwise to organize, you know, to organize uh, because Georgia, you know, Georgia is a whole different place when it comes down to unions and organizing. Uh, and racism is this historical method that the bosses have used to separate black workers from white workers. So. Uh, but uh, we have to have a strategy, a unified strategy. Otherwise, we're what? We're reacting. Uh, and that's why we need to, we have to take advantage of what we were talking about earlier, about how unions, union organizing is becoming more and more of an accepted thing in this pandemic era. Yeah, in the 1970s, Andrew Young, or looking back on his service in the 1970s, Andrew Young, who's a really important figure at the school, said, um, when I was in the Carter administration, we were trying to open the door for of the New Deal to African Americans. We were trying to open the door so African Americans could get in on the New Deal. And what we didn't know was that the Republicans were taking apart the House. So the building and the maintenance of the house is what lawyers do. And I just, I think it's incumbent on everyone to realize their social responsibility for keeping the lights on. So everyone join me and thank you to our guests. Um, you're, both, uh, you're welcome to come drink with us. Uh, the far left has gotten the insecure border. They want it. And today the far left will get the Supreme Court justice. They want it. The fringe activists who demand partisan court packing, attack the justices, and describe our Constitution as trash, 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 made up their minds from the start of this administration. If a Supreme Court vacancy should arise, they wanted one nominee and one, one nominee only, Judge Jackson. Then they badgered Justice Breyer to quit. They're stacking the deck with far-left prosecutors, woke warriors at the Department of Justice, and federal judges who believe criminals deserve lighter treatment. The outsized role that unelected judges play in our national life. A republic of self-serving citizens should not spend every June watching with bated breath to see if five or six lawyers will hand down sweeping policy changes with zero basis in the written constitution. And the solution is not to make the court even more of a super legislature like liberals want. <clears throat> a delegitimizing death spiral that would destroy the rule of law. There's only one solution. The Senate should only confirm justices who will follow the text of our laws and our Constitution, wherever it leads. Who will leave subjective policy judgments on this side of the street where they belong? That's how we lower the temperature. That's how we shore up the courts. That's how we protect the rule of law. Staff the judiciary with brilliant men and women who understand and embrace this limited role. Peaceful dreams no other road leads anywhere good road for our great nation.
Georgia. No peace, no peace I find. Just an old sweet song keeps Georgia on my mind. Georgia, I said, just an old sweet song. Keeps Georgia.